And now, another cup of... The London Fog. Welcome. Welcome. This is the London Fog. Yeah, I can't believe it. We're back again. And I am drinking a London Fog. Oh, are you? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. That's I definitely this week with work was pretty insane. So I had Stephen, boyfriend. I don't know if I've mentioned by name. Boyfriend run out and buy a tea. I know. Go out and grab me some tea, and he got me some London fog makings because I was getting, I don't know if it's just allergy season, but you know when you get kind of just that slight pressure headache and you can't seem to wake up in the morning and the weather shifts from being like a beautiful day to kind of like a rainy day. Mm -hmm. I just was feeling pretty crummy this week. So I needed a little pep in my step. Um, So I got that and I made it with uh, almond milk. So tasty. Oh, that does sound good. So right now, though, I'm sipping on a little bit of detox tea, which is like licorice and fennel and whatever not, else. Not super tasty in flavor, is it? <laughs> um, well, licorice and fennel is pretty sweet naturally. Mm-hmm. So it tastes pretty sweet. It definitely has like a like more of a, a little know. kick or something, right? <laughs> it's not, uh, I can't describe almost that flavor. I don't want to say earthy because it doesn't taste like dirt <laughs> doesn't but it no doesn't it? it is tea um but I don't know I feel like fennel has a lot of that just kind of sweet I know it's in like a lot of Italian cooking so it's got like a a savory sweet flavor mm-hmm. but it doesn't have anything like really like bright in it like a citrus like the bergamot oil in Earl Grey has you know okay so it's it's a little bit more sweet mellow if you're looking for something. Plus, it's supposed to be really great for your liver and kidneys. And I went on a bike ride yesterday. And I know this is like muscle cramps. And it has nothing to do about my functions of my organs. Yeah, I feel like your liver is probably fine. But I went <laughs> on this bike ride. Heavy drinking I don't know about. <laughs> She's gotten really heavy on the bottle <laughs> since COVID started. No, um... I just went on this bike ride and I was hunching over like mad. And so my, my lower back hurts. And for some reason, my psyche was all like, obviously it's your kidney. So I was all like detox tea this morning, but it's good. It's called, it's by uh, Puka, P-U-K-K-A. I bought it at Whole Foods. So Hmm. it's a unique one. When you just want something like simple, I'll have that in the morning sometimes, but it's a good one before bed because it's a little sweet, but it doesn't have any caffeine or anything. Sounds good. Who's your Earl Grey by? Does that a store brand or something tasty? Um, it's like a Chinese brand. I got it at the Chinese oh. grocery store, so I don't know what it's called. <laughs> no, that's even better. I can't wait. A lot of the Chinese groceries here, like groceries have stayed open, but some of the smaller little food markets over in Chinatown, they're not even small. They're really big, but they've been only opened a few days a week. And they're not um, open on the weekend to like minimize people coming out. And because I'm still working, I haven't been able to go down there because I've wanted to get a few interesting ingredients and tea would be amazing. I'm sure at an Asian market, I've never gotten tea from an Asian market. 
There's a lot of options. <laughs> it's true. That's where we get tea from. <laughs> but we're back. We're here today to talk about all things. Do you have any good Britishy news? Um, I mean, Prince Louis had a birthday. Oh, that's right. How old is he now? I think two. Um, I should oh. really, really know that because they definitely like it was definitely just a couple of days ago. Um, yeah, two second birthday. Oh, too cute. And I don't know if anyone else has noticed, but Will and Kate have really stepped up their Instagram game. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I was about to say the same thing. And I feel like because everything switched over from kind of the the Sussex running everything, you know, uh, now that they're taking a step back, I guess they moved to Los Angeles or California well, somewhere. I, I don't know. I mean, people say that, right. But it's like, when people were like, oh my gosh, they moved to Canada. It was like they were renting a house there. And it's the same thing with California. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, they moved to California. It's like, well, but they're renting a house there and her mom lives there. Like maybe they're just hanging out, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if they bought a house or anything, but at least they're they're having a smidge of a, a prolonged visit. Yeah. You know? But I mean, like, it's still been less time than they were in Canada and that wasn't a move necessarily. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, they are in the LA area and people are really using it for their news. Like it was funny that when there was an earthquake like last week or something, like some of the news articles I saw, I mean, they really said like, like before they even mentioned the earthquake, it was their headline was something like Sussex is in an earthquake or whatever. I was like, really? Like all of LA was in an earthquake. Like, I don't think I don't think like they were not impacted any more than anyone else at least yeah, as far as we right. know it's not like they released a statement saying they were impacted <laughs> it'll be fine just because they're there doesn't mean that they're dying mm-hmm. um pretty much the only cute news that I found because I'm always trying to find a little something happy during still some interesting times uh is in the village of Burley uh in Warwickshire there is a mom, a single mom, who on the daily, her name, number one, is too ironic or cute or has been changed. Her name is Kitten Von Mew. <laughs> and she uh, every day takes things from around her her flat and is creating costumes with her daughter, who appears to be like four or five. And they go on a walk around the neighborhood and people have just started snapping photos of them because every day it's a different outfit. And pretty much the ones that are getting everybody's like attention is that she keeps dressing them up as Harry Potter characters. Oh, super cute, super cute. And, uh, yeah, just something happy to keep people entertained. That's fun. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I put on, something other than leggings this morning. So I don't know who I am. Mind you, it's a skirt. It's because I didn't want to put on pants. That still ain't happening. <laughs> I've been, I mean, I, I know where she's coming from because I've been making a lot of TikToks of my daughter. <laughs> okay. So is it true that TikTok like takes your face? Like, isn't it owned by like a, a, a company that like they take your face image and then it, they now can like open your your phone or something. 
I was reading all these like things about like, don't use TikTok, but maybe that was like old TikTok before it got an update or something Um, that people were finding that their identities or like their I like iPad or iPhone devices could be opened by somebody else because they had taken a video of their face. I think that that was probably like old news from back old when, news. when they first started. I mean, there's a lot of issues with it, like with any using any well, I feel like media. Everything. I feel like but, you know, Instagram wasn't it? Instagram a while ago, like a couple of years ago, had like a hack down and like millions and millions and millions of people's like identities and pictures just got like sold off to anybody. So be yeah. wary of what you post there, my friends. <laughs> No, this is true, but I think that's with everything. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Well, sweet. Right. Um, yeah, I guess so, we can. Yeah, our topic this week is we decided we were going to pick each pick an Abby to talk about. Yes, and as uh, we were setting up, I was telling Leah how much I loved this uh, this topic. There are so many Abbeys uh, in the UK and throughout the world, but so many great ones. And I think this is going to be definitely something we revisit because there's just too many good stories and histories mm-hmm. there and they can be newer or they are most of the time really old and kind of have their own spooky and interesting history. So we're definitely going to keep this one up. I like it a lot. Yes. Um, no, it was fun. I, I feel like the only issue is like all of the Abbeys are so freaking old that mm. <laughs> when you're like looking into the history, you're like, well, wait, like how, how long do we want this episode to be like, I could talk about this for like three hours, but nobody wants that. So. Right. Right. <laughs> I just tried to hit some of like the, the bigger highlights. And I think the biggest part to like for me that I kept getting to, because they all have that common denominator of, let's just bring up the topic here at the beginning, why Henry VIII is oh, the biggest yeah. turd of all time. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it makes sense, though, because if you're going to break away from the Catholic Church, you don't want your entire country full of, like, Catholic churches and monasteries. <laughs> right. So what Lee and I are talking about is known as the, uh, oh, geez, the dissolution of the monasteries, there it is, uh, <laughs> which happened in like 1540 or 1541, between 1540 and 1545. So this is right after King Henry VIII decides, I'm making my own church. And as Leah brings up the great and very true point that if you're going to make your own church and say, okay, no more monasteries, which left thousands and thousands of people without, you know, quote, a job. I mean, they were working for Christ, but I mean, that was their life. And, and, you know, pretty much kicks them out and then sells them off. And that's why all of these beautiful monasteries now, that's why they all have about kind of the same level of decay. I find, you know, um, usually without a roof because most of the roofs back then, especially in between like the 14 and 1500s, they were made of lead, 
which no wonder everybody was dying so early because we put <laughs> literally a lead roof over our heads. But they would then unshingle the top of these roofs of all these monasteries and um, and sell it. So, well, we can get into that in a minute. We'll get I feel like it. we're both going to get into that. I feel Just like we're saying, getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> major turd, King Henry VIII. It'll come back. It's a theme. I mean, um, it's a constant theme throughout British history. Um, I know. It always comes back to Henry. <laughs> I think I should go first because I'm discussing the first abbey in the UK. <laughs> Do it. Do it. Okay. So, um, I'm going to talk about St. Augustine's Abbey, um, which was number one. So, uh, Very first. Yes. Take us back, Leah, as usual. <laughs> so St. Augustine was basically, I mean, he was like the first Christian missionary to go to England. Like he was sent from Rome in the late 6th century. Um, to bring Christianity to the Anglo-Saxons in England. Um, So he had been living as a monk in Rome in 595, and Pope Gregory the Great decided to send him on a mission to convert all of the pagans to the Christian faith. Um, Not an easy job because people were kind of that barbaric lifestyle at that point, you know, and coming from someplace like Rome, that's really, you know, civilized and pulled together and, you know, full of I mean, innovation. I not call it barbaric. It. it just depends on if you believe in King Arthur or not, which I do. So I feel like <laughs> they were doing fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, you know, he gets, he gets sent by Pope Gregory. So in 597, he lands on the shores of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Kent. Um, so I guess that, so Christianity, there had been some Christianity introduced to, in Britain by the Romans like a hundred years before then. Um, and then like there was invasions of pagan people from Northern Europe that ended up taking over. And so there was no more I mean, there was like some Christianity, but it like wasn't widespread anymore. So when St. Augustine lands, it's, I'm, I can't say this name. It's some really wild name. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's like, okay. The first letter is one of, is, is that letter that's like an A and an E put together. Yeah. 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 I I don't know how to say it. Anyway. So King. I think it's just an A sound. King Ethelbert of Kent. That's it. So he was like the most powerful man in England. Um, And he was, so even though he didn't immediately convert to Christianity, he allowed Augustine and his missionaries to come and he granted them land on the east side of Canterbury for them to like start their mission. So the reason is because um, his queen, Queen Bertha, of Kent she was originally from um she was a a Frankish princess so her father was a king of Paris and so she was actually already Christian so she um like I don't know so they like credit her with like Christianity being allowed to come because if he hadn't had a Christian wife, it's possible when the missionaries landed St. Augustine, he would have been like, what yeah. are you guys doing? Get out of here. But since 
his wife was Christian and actually one of the like there's a record of her marriage from which is crazy 575 we have records of it but um but one of the conditions of her marriage was that she would be allowed to continue to practice her religion so when she went you know esther had to do it so did bertha yeah so when she went over to kent she brought a christian bishop with her and they, there was a church of St. Martin in Canterbury, um, which was from back when the Romans had been there, you know, a hundred years before, and they had been using that as their church. So when St. Augustine got there and King Ethelbert gave him the land, it was over by the St. Martin's church where his wife Bertha was already worshiping. So they, um, built an abbey um (laughs) so uh they started building a main church almost immediately um i don't know if you guys have if you've been to an abbey in england it's i mean it's like they start with the church and then they you know build rooms for the monks and then they add another smaller church so it's like Mm -hmm. over the years it expanded a lot um but they started out you know just with the church and stuff right so um so anyway, the, the church was kind of like growing. He's spreading to the rest of of England and Britain from there. He's training up missionaries. Um, and so uh, St. Augustine's was the head of all of this. And they were just kind of doing their thing, spreading Christianity, Um, this goes on for a few hundred years. (laughs) And, uh, so a few hundred years later, um, there's, uh, another, a later bishop after Augustine, his name was Dunstan and he like loved Augustine. He was his idol. And so that's when the church became called St. Augustine's Abbey. So like, even though St. Augustine built it, I don't even know what St. Augustine called it when he built it, actually. I think he, he dedicated it to, like, St. Peter and St. Paul, but I don't know if it even really had a name. Um, so three, four hundred years later, it becomes St. Augustine's Abbey. So um, in 1011, <laughs> like I said, the, this I mean, the, there's a lot of history, but we're not going to get too deep. But in 1011, um, Vikings raided Canterbury. <laughs> So, yeah, so they, um, they raided Canterbury, they captured the abbot at the time and held him hostage. Um, but eventually in 1016, so they they held the abbot hostage It's five years later, finally, a Danish invader became king of the area and he was into it. And so he gave the abbey new, um, privileges and they actually um, moved a bunch of relics from other churches in the area to St. Augustine's. And so it kind of gave it more importance. They had um, there was Mildred, who was a great, great granddaughter of King Ethelbert, um, had some uh, relics of hers. I don't know, religious relics of hers that were important and, and they moved it there. So like, St. Augustine's Abbey then became like even more uh, like connected to royalty. And so it became more important. Um, 
So then a mere 50 years later. Uh, <laughs> here. The uh, North- FYI, I keep inside going, Ethelbert, what a great name. <laughs> I mean, Saxon names are doozies. I know. That's actually like pretty easy to pronounce compared to some of the other ones. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, Mine are full of ones I can't pronounce, so <laughs> be prepared. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so in 1066, the Norman Conquest... Um, a lot of abbeys were uh, possessed and their possessions were taken. However, St. Augustine's, for some reason, because of, like, I don't know, for it's a weird thing in history, but, like, kings sometimes are, like, more, it's like they feel a connection to other kings. So, like, because the abbey has this, like, connection with old royalty, it's like, oh, well, you know, that king from a hundred years ago, I don't want to destroy his stuff. So, um, so they were allowed to keep their land in possessions. Um, so during the Norman, Norman conquest, they, St. Augustine's Abbey was rebuilt. Um, they, the Normans brought some new architecture from France and they replaced the Abbey with like a really grand new Abbey, um, which, so this is in Canterbury. So Canterbury Cathedral is there as well. But the new abbey was actually um, like almost as big as Canterbury Cathedral. Like it was huge. Um, so it was, then it was like one of the most architecturally impressive monasteries north of the Alps. So like, you know, obviously Italy still had all of the most impressive ones, but <laughs> it was like the most impressive one in the North. So yeah. because of this, the people in Canterbury Cathedral were like kind of jealous. There's like, that's sort of, there was like tension because like the cathedral is like where everyone would go and um, practice their religion. And there's the archbishop who's like running things, but the monks of St. Augustine's um, were like running their own thing and they had special privileges from the Pope so that they were independent of like the archbishop who was kind of in charge of the rest of the city because everyone was so religious back then that if you were the archbishop you were kind of running things yeah. um, and then also they had permission from the Pope to like do a bunch of stuff that normally only bishops are allowed to do I'm I don't know what that was back then but <laughs> Um, maybe it was like go on a stroll without your wimple on I guess that's nuns dang it (laughs) yeah but the crazy thing is um like all of like okay it's like the super important center for religion in Britain and everything but I mean when they were at some of their largest it was 84 monks like (laughs) hey that's a good size though yeah, I mean, I guess it is a good size. It's just, like, kind of feels funny that, like, that is, like, the whole group of people. Large. That, like, yeah, like, that's... Well, I mean, you have to put it back in that time period, though. Yeah, 84 people now, we can, you know, fill that up. I mean, I think max capacity <laughs> at a McDonald's is, like, 120. But the fact mm. of the matter is, is people died all of the time. <laughs> so having kind of getting people in smaller spaces... Um, and less amounts of people that was the norm you know so I feel like a crowd of 80 was probably a lot wouldn't you think yeah but I'm I mean like I guess I'm just basing this of like having been to the abbey it's huge like if yeah only 80 people were living there I mean I guess maybe like 
the people who are like helping them cook and clean and whatever are probably also living there. So yeah. that's just the number of monks. Um, so this whole time, all these monks at St. Augustine's have been like, they're all like deeply devoted to St. Augustine. And so they like publish pamphlets about like miracles that he wrought and whatever. So this is kind of why St. Augustine becomes this like legend in England instead of like just like oh he's this like missionary that brought Christianity it's like oh he performed all these miracles and he did all this stuff which like maybe is true but they're publishing about it a thousand years after he was there so (laughs) um so anyway things are going well the monks are happy everyone's happy until 1535 which as we mentioned, is when Henry VIII broke with Rome and was like, hey, I'm the head of the Church of England because I want to divorce Catherine of Aragon and the Pope won't let me. So the first thing that happened before what Kate mentioned earlier about like kind of destroying the abbeys was the suppression of the monasteries. So that was between 1536 and 1540. So that was like before they started like really forcing like the closures and forcing people to leave. It was just, they were just started like, um, like suppressing them and like coming to take their riches and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, this was all during a time when, you know, poor peasants were all like, Oh my gosh, I need to have penance. And they would say your penance is, you know, two shillings or whatever, you know, they're, their economic, you know, coin was then. So, I mean, these places had some money, you know, and every relic was made of gold because, you know, you wanted to give your best to Christ. So such a interesting concept, you know. So in, on July 30th of 1538, um, the, the, I don't know who from Henry VIII's, managers of whatever came to St. Augustine's and and, and they um and they convinced the abbot and at that point 30 other monks to sign a document voluntarily surrendering the abbey to the king so it wasn't really that voluntary because some other smaller uh abbey uh, smaller abbeys they had actually bu- brutally executed people who said no so the abbey just was just being smart <laughs> this is called foreshadowing <laughs> yeah and so um so actually this was this was pretty good for them because um because they voluntarily signed it away the abbot was actually awarded a generous pension and he was retired to a former manor in his monastery and then the monks all received pensions and were and were able to find work as parish priests. So it wasn't so that bad for them. Start, I, I, I know neither one of us know this answer, but do you think that they just, I mean, if your occupation has been, you know, to work within religion, do you just then go, oh, well, I guess the only religion now we have is this one. So I'll just start preaching in, in that religion or do you think people were all like no peace out I'm gonna go and become a farmer or something I think that you just go with it it well especially at this point at this point yeah. I mean like everything about the religion is the same except for that Henry VIII is saying that he's running it and like yeah. you, can, you can get divorced like other than that 
everything yeah. is the same. So I feel like their day-to-day life would just be the same. Like Sundays are the same, you know? <laughs> so, so anyway, after, after they turned the Abbey over, everything of value was seized by Henry's henchmen. Henchmen, that's the word. Ooh, good word. <laughs> so they um they stole anything worth everything but they also took like there was something that had um king ethelbert's school they destroyed yeah. the shrines of saint augustine and the other saints they destroyed some tombs because of the kings of kent who were buried there because you know sometimes people bury riches in their tombs um and then they like destroyed the library which the abbey was known for having a great library um and so so this was all in 1538 a few years later when you which you mentioned uh henry kind of felt like you know what i didn't do enough so in 1541 he decides he's gonna demolish it like just having it still there is just too much for him um so he like targets it for destruction. Um, but uh, actually he decided like, cause like I said, Augustine Abbey was just like super nice. And so um, he was going to destroy it, but then he decided, you know what? Like the former abbot's apartments are super nice. I'm going to turn this into a Royal palace. So for about, mm. about 10 years, he starts construction construction to turn it into a palace they make a walled courtyard a private garden um and then but he like never actually goes there and stays there and so he spent all this time like making it into a royal palace and so in 1564 he decides he's just going to rent it out to some nobles who want to live there (laughs) so um in 1612 uh henry's out of the picture and James the first is like, I don't even want this stupid palace. It used to be an abbey. <laughs> like, I don't want to live there. So he sells it to Edward Hales, Lord Watton, who was just like a prominent figure in his court. Um, and so he decides like to make this their family home. He hires a very famous gardener. There's like ornamental gardens put around. Um, and so when he dies, the palace, or no, he dies, his wife inherits. When she dies, the palace is inherited by his great-grandson, who actually, I guess, was a good friend of the future James II. Um, and so they kind Naturally. of, yeah, and it just, like, stays in their family until 1804. So, oh, yeah, so during that time, like, some of the buildings kind of decay, like, because um, they're using like the main part as their home, but yeah. the there's like all these outer buildings. So like there's there was like a great gate that had a chamber over it that was used for cockfighting. Um, <laughs> another another building was turned into an inn. Um, they the old cemetery they turned into uh, they built a jail there. So um, yeah, it was just all kind of like messed up like they were just using it for whatever so in the 1840s the site was purchased by sir alexander james beresford hope so he was a politician and an art collector and he 
wanted to establish a missionary college on that site. And so um, he formed a partnership with a master at Eaton and they decided they were going to make this into a missionary college. So they hired William Butterfield, whose name might be familiar. He just, he was like a super famous architecture in the 1840s. And so um, he like designed college buildings. So it's like, they're still using part of the old buildings, but they made some college buildings. Um, and during, while they were construction, while they were constructing this, they also like allowed archeologists to come in. And so they started doing some excavating um, of the old Abbey. So that was kind of interesting. Um, so St. Augustine's college operated from 1848 until 1947. Um, so like, I don't even know what a missionary college is, but presumably it's a college for missionaries. Um, but in 1938, the Office of Works, which is which was like the UK office right now, it's like right now they call it like the English English Heritage. Like if you go to any historical place in the UK, it's like run by English Heritage. At that time, it was called the Office of Works. So they took over guardianship of the site, and the UNESCO declared it a World Heritage Site in 1989. And now they've uh, turned it into a museum, and you can go and visit it. And it's, like, pretty interesting because, like, parts of it are an abbey. Parts of it are someone's old homes. Parts of it were jail. <laughs> like, it's just a lot happened in the last 2,000 years. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> That's good. So, that's that makes story. that reminds me of a place here in Houston. Um, do you know of the Marks Restaurant on Montrose? I don't think so. Uh, they turned it into one fifth. It's one of those Chris Shepherd restaurants, but the building. So right now it's one fifth, and before it was a steak restaurant called Marks. But before that. The building originally was built as a church, like a small church, and it's really beautiful inside. Um, And then the church, like, didn't survive, so it, like, closed down. Another church went in, and they didn't survive, and they closed down. And then it became a strip club, and then it closed down, and then it became, like, an AA, like, center uh, and then that closed down, and then it got, like, converted into a restaurant, and I just kind of went, like, (laughs) oh, my gosh. (laughs) Anyway, um, that was awesome. Thanks. I feel like it's perfect because it kind of feeds into mine because mine, obviously all these abbeys are so old. So um, mine starts out right around the same time, just a little bit after, but we're going to start, I'm doing a Glastonbury Abbey, which has been mentioned by Leah before for reasons that will come forward later. But um, I thought instead of starting with the actual history, we're going to start with the myth history of how the Abbey got started, just because I think it's better. Let's, let's believe in the myth. (laughs) I went there and I believed it all. I believe it all. So, um, Glastonbury, uh, is founded the, I, I know, I don't know if you know, listener, did you know that Jesus built his own church in England? Well, let me tell you about it. So Glastonbury has <laughs> the myth that Christ himself came and built it with Joseph, a 
of Arimathea after he was crucified. So I figured this one was going to work because it's right around Easter time. We just did our, our celebration. So um, as like gospel records uh, have it, that Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy follower of Christ, and he's the one that provided the tomb in which Christ's body was put after he was crucified. Um, during the Arthian King Arthur romance period of Britain, uh, some of these legends kind of emerged, but we come to this story that Joseph of Arimathea traveled over to uh, England and brought with him the Holy Grail. That's one myth. And uh, that's one truth. No, that's one, <laughs> one truth by Leah. Um, he came with him and he buried the Holy Grail in a secret place, which we have come to know as the Chalice Well. And uh, the springs that come from there will keep you forever young. Uh, and so he comes, he buries the chalice, but the other Joseph of Arimathea legend is that he is the found, he created, he came, he created the foundation spot for where the church was built. So Joseph arrives in Britain and is said to have landed on the island of Avonlawn and climbed up the Wall Hill and exhausted, he had taken his staff and he thrust it into the ground. And by the morning, his staff had taken root. And this is what they call the holy thorn, but it started to produce a beautiful tree. And so obviously he saw this as blessed ground and he had come with 12 followers, and they began to establish and build the first abbey at Glastonbury. Mind you, in another version, it is said that Christ also came with Joseph of Arimathea, and that Christ helped build the church there. So uh, as this is all starting, that's our beginning of history. We come to the fact that this abbey was founded in the 17th century and grew larger come the 10th century. The grounds itself were blessed by Christ, but we they were first owned and possessed by the Saxons who had recently converted to Christianity, probably thanks to Leah's abbey. Yeah. You're welcome. So it's true. <laughs> so King Ein of Wessex, uh, he is the one that started to invest all of the money into building uh, a place of worship in the seventh century. Between seventh to tenth century, it's a big chunk of time, but not much is known because that's like the year five hundred or 600. So uh, the church starts to get larger and we start to kind of get a little bit more history recorded starting in the 10th century. And then the in 1066, the wealth of the Abbey uh, kind of took a little cut because obviously it was being supported by the Saxons. So we're going through all this transition. Now it's 1066, William Conqueror has emerged 
and uh, the Normans are now taking over. But overall, the Abbey has been very uh, a high status. They have a lot of money, and now they're kind of hitting a little bit of a, a wall, and they're not really sure what to do. So the, for the Normans to help betterment this Abbey, they create the Domesday Book, which is pretty much like a, a census record to figure out where all the money is and then tell people to invest their money into the Glastonbury Abbey. <laughs> so they take a census. They say, oh, there's so many people here. You need to pay a little bit more for X, Y, and Z things. And so they start putting money towards the Abbey. In 1184, the Norman structures that were starting to be added onto the Abbey caught fire and were destroyed. And as the story goes, there's a little, once again, here comes the history mixed with some truth. legend. The truth, <laughs> as Leo would take it. Um, the story goes that in order to raise funds for what they kept calling the pilgrims, because they kept telling all of these peasants, you need to pilgrim your way to these abbeys and you know be converted and come to Christ. To get more money, because everybody kind of stopped coming to this abbey, because, well, it caught fire and people are all like, why do I need to go there? They miraculously, in 1191, dug and dug and dug and found the body of King Arthur and his queen, Guinevere. This is truth as told by Leah. <laughs> um, it definitely is. Otherwise, why did I go there to see King Arthur's grave? <laughs> it's true. Um, so, of course, people go, this was just like a political stunt to get money, but <laughs> there is said to be the burial site of King Arthur. They find the body. They then put the bones on display. And so people start hurting to the abbey in grand masses to see the bones and um on a special day uh, in 1278 they took a black marble tomb and placed both king arthur and queen guinevere's skeleton and bones and in the presence of king edward the first as leah had mentioned sometimes these kings frolic and get connected to these abbeys king edward the first was always at glastonbury he chose it as his place of where he was getting his you know revelations his power his divinity to be king and uh he was there in the reburial of king arthur and queen guinevere in their black marble tomb so after this took place, uh, people kept pilgrimage, uh, taking their pilgrimage to the abbey. They wanted to see the tomb. King Arthur was both a historical figure, but also had was almost like their own British Christ figure. You know, he went through all these trials. He went around the world and was just kind of almost like a power symbol. So people wanted to gain that strength off of the King Arthur history. I won't call it legend for the sake of Leah. <laughs> so they go and they, they keep, um, <coughs> sorry, they keep investing into um, this pilgrimage, which keeps bringing in money. So they keep 
making the place bigger and bigger. So in the years that followed in the 12th century and into the 13th century, the Abbey continues to grow and become the second wealthiest. It was the wealthiest up until the 14th century Abbey when Westminster obviously took it over. So it was um, large. There was a lot of um, beautiful paintings and crucifix and wealth all around. So people pilgrimage there. They felt inspired in the 14th century uh, as the head of the second wealthiest abbey in Britain, the abbot of Glastonbury lived really spectacularly. He had developed almost like a private, I don't know, guest hall, like an inn. Uh, but this is where all of your royals would come and, and kind of have like your camp, your own like spiritual camp, David, um, <laughs> where you'd come and you'd be recharged. And it was almost like a spa time and you were just surrounded around splendor. And this was a huge place for the royals to go up until even King Henry the seventh, who had created his own special apartment on the south end of the abbot's house, as it was called, his own private spot where he would go and visit quite often to refresh himself. <laughs> so uh, then we have yield 1535, 1536, King Henry VIII is all like, and he's, and this is the shocking thing. He's only 27 years old at this point. I mean, who's giving any 27 year old that much power? The British thought it was a good idea. Mind you, they only live to be like, what, 40? So I guess he is considered yeah, middle age, almost middle age. <laughs> he was full of so much knowledge that he thought it was a great idea to start, uh, what did you call it? The suppression? Yeah. Like suppressing these uh, monasteries, nunneries, and friaries. So there were close to 800 of them in total in the year 1536. And within five years, by 1541, there were none. They were all gone for that, for that purpose. I mean, they still stood. They didn't like burn them to the ground by any means, but they uh, no longer functioned as places for um, spiritual growth, I would say. Like some of them were converted into a, just a church, but even a church of that size, like unless they're producing on something on the grounds, they couldn't um, keep up. So. Uh, so by 1541, the Abbey has been demolished, uh, of all of its sacred relics. They had a significant amount of silver and gold and loads of land that had been attached, but had been, um, sold off. It is said that in the September of 1590, 1539, sorry, the Abbey was visited by the henchmen of Thomas Cromwell <laughs> and stripped of all of its valuables and uh, had a signatory act to say that King Henry VIII is the head of the church. But the abbot Richard uh, Whiting, 
he was one of these that instead of like Leah's Abbey just kind of went, okay, cool. He's now the head of the church. Uh, Richard Whiting was like, no, you're not. You did this yourself. This has nothing to do with God in it. And so he was, he resisted. He was then a crowd was drawn to the Abbey to show that he was not a man of God and that King Henry VIII was, and because of his heresy, he was hanged, drawn, and quartered uh, on November 15th of 1539 and hung there and at the Abbey. <laughs> yeah. So obviously after that, it, it just started to decline. Everybody was all like, well, bummer. I don't want to go to this place that I just saw this guy that probably some of these younger people had traveled to and visited. Um, so it was a real bummer place. So it slowly uh, starts to fall into decay. They did sell the roof, um, the roofing off because it had a high amount of lead in it. And so the first thing to go was the, the roof. And because the rains came, uh, things started to dissolve from the inside out. So pretty much it gets sold off uh, and is kept within the Seymour household and the Duke of Somerset until pretty much the 20th century. We have people coming in and out. Queen um, Elizabeth I first had visited during the 16th century, but it sells off until right now it is a part of the British trust and is a museum that you can come and see. The grounds are spectacular and have all different layers of foundation because the initial stones were laid probably somewhere around like 300 BC as their guesstimate. But mind you, Christ made it, so let's make it around like 40, 40 BC. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there are still, as I had mentioned from the very beginning, the holy thorn, the tree that is there at on the grounds is still there today, though multiple times through the War of the Roses and civil wars that had gone on through the years, they had been cut down multiple times. But there's still a persistent tree that grows right there in Glaston, which people say it goes to show that this is a blessed place by Joseph of Arimathea and by Christ himself, that it will always stand as a religious, I don't know, gathering place. Uh, for for the country of England. So that is Glastonbury Abbey. Yay. Hey, I loved this topic. There were so many good ones. I just started to like go and go, but I really liked kind of getting a little bit into the, the mythology. And I think we picked pretty big ones for this first round. So okay, we'll have to do some smaller <laughs> ones. But before we... Uh, get off. I almost wanted to say our next episode, and I haven't even talked to Leah about this, so we're having this conversation over the or whatever it is. Okay. <laughs> um, I am almost tempted. We should do a Jane Austen episode because I figure what better time to talk about Jane Austen, about all these stories of people like not doing very much 
when we're all not doing very much, let's like really consider it. Like um, they did plenty of stuff. They were at least oh. able to travel from city to city. <laughs> yeah, in a coach with like two other people, you can travel from city to city. And Are you still on lockdown? To the baths and well, I'm I'm not allowed to leave the city. Uh, it's true. So. I mean, we can't go to the theater and this and that, but talk about you know. That's like the hoity-toity. That's the in-season. Let's talk about out-of-season. I'm talking your Pride and Prejudice, your Emma's, your Mansfield Park, especially Mansfield Park. Uh, Sense of Sensibilities. So I say we both... Why don't you want to talk about Northanger Abbey? Northanger Abbey! See? It's all fitting. So I just think maybe here... It doesn't have to be the next one, but I feel like we should have a Jane Austen. Or Persuasion? Okay. Um, Well, okay. I guess the the thing is, like, what... How would would we do that? Like... We'll figure it out. Okay. We'll 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 figure it out. Maybe maybe it's almost like we make it, like, a debate which one is better. Because I feel like you can put up, like, a Pride and Prejudice against a... a sense and sensibility and people are going to well but I mean, feisty. yeah but see i don't really care about those two so i wouldn't get feisty i feel like Ooh, which one would you get feisty over persuasion is the only good one Ooh. persuasion <laughs> is so good see this is what i'm talking about like we can battle who the book report of which one is better okay. i think i'm and the thing is okay, like have my okay we each okay before the next one We'll each make a ranking of our favorites. Okay. And, and you have to justify. Yeah. You can't and just be like, here's my number. Our ranking. And okay. Okay. Deal. So for our listeners out there, we want you to do the same and we'll figure out. Everybody's going to really right now. Reread them all. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I guess we miss like March Madness, but we would make a bracket. We'll make a bracket. <laughs> which one is your favorite and Jane Austen's are going to fight. So yeah. Okay. I love it. Let's do this. All right. Sounds good. Um, We'll be back next week with this exciting new topic. (laughs) Definitely. So thanks for listening. Drink some tea and cheers. Cheers.